Capital punishment is a hotly debated topic among Christians, and really rightly so. Both the Old and New Testaments talk about it being within the government's rights. But I want you to let me know if you're aware of any verses that condone private citizens executing a man when the government isn't doing it fast enough for them. I am so glad you're here with me. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Let's tackle another story from the world of true crime and see what we can learn about our physical, emotional, and spiritual safety from it. When we're equipped with the knowledge to keep ourselves safer, then we can fulfill our calling to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. This is Season 3, Episode 52. I'm really excited about this episode. We're going to wrap up the case of the Santa Claus bank robbery. It's an amazing book by the late journalist and author A.C. Green. And for me, this last part of this story is the most compelling and I think one that really makes us search our own hearts. So let's dive right in. In our first three episodes covering this case, we had a bank robbery, stolen cars, hostages, bystanders who were injured and even killed, one robber killed, and another executed. So what we're left with for this week is one robber serving a 99-year sentence who tried to escape prison, and another one who is facing execution but is trying his best to convince authorities that he is insane and thereby can't be put to death under Texas law. After Henry Helms was executed, Marshall Ratliff's behavior changed drastically. He developed these facial tics and he mumbled constantly. He stopped eating and seemed to even lose the ability to use his hands and his feet. Of course, the timing of all this was suspicious, to say the very least. He even gave no response when he was told that Bob Hill had once again escaped from prison. Ratliff's mother petitioned the court to have a sanity hearing for her son. Local citizens were not only outraged that he seemed to be, in their opinion, trying to cheat the system, but maybe they were even more upset that he had used the image of Santa Claus in the robbery. Everybody was getting tired of hearing about the antics of Marshall Ratliff. The local jailer, Pack Kilborn, was told to keep a sharp eye on Ratliff to see if he ever slipped up and acted perfectly sane. Like a jailer's job isn't hard enough already. Law enforcement officers, wherever they're serving, have the potential to put their lives in danger on any given day. So having to check this guy for signs of sanity was really adding an extra layer on top of an already difficult job. But Pack did have an assistant, a man known around town as Uncle Tom Jones, and he helped him keep an eye out as well. It got to the point where Ratliff's condition had deteriorated so much, or at least he pretended it did, no one was really quite sure yet that Pack and Uncle Tom had to bathe and dress him and even spoon-feed him all of his meals. Ratliff's mother would visit him and beg her son to acknowledge her. He would only mumble, I've sinned against the Holy Ghost, over and over. No matter what his keepers did to try to startle him or catch him off guard, Ratliff maintained this appearance of being totally disconnected from reality. Everyone began to wonder if Ratliff had driven himself truly insane in what they thought was his attempt to just appear insane. Or maybe, just like he had predicted, Marshall Ratliff wouldn't ride old Sparky after all. 
The jail was crowded at that time with prisoners who were also headed to death row. Uncle Tom Jones had only been hired temporarily, and he was due to finish up his work very soon. Pack convinced the county judge to keep Uncle Tom on the payroll just a bit longer, and so the judge allowed him to stay for just one more week. That decision ended up being a death sentence for Tom. It had been nearly a month that Marshall Ratliff had been going or pretending to go insane. Pack and Uncle Tom were feeding him as usual, and they didn't ever carry their weapons into where the prisoners were. That's a safety protocol. They left them up in their office, locked up tight. Now they left them there on this night, but neglected to lock the office. And it was the opportunity Ratliff had been waiting for. Since he had hardly moved a muscle for the last month, his jail cell was left unlocked for a few moments as the jailers checked on other prisoners. He made his way to the office and retrieved Pack's 38 Colt. Ratliff fired at Pack but missed. And then he turned and fired again, this time at Uncle Tom. This time, he did not miss. Pack's wife heard the shots and called the sheriff. Their married daughter, who was visiting them, grabbed a gun herself and ran to help her father. But by the time she got there, Pack had wrestled the gun away from Ratliff and subdued him. An ambulance came to rush Uncle Tom to the hospital. The other inmates promised Pack that they'd take care of Ratliff if they would just be left alone with him. But of course, Pack couldn't and didn't allow that to happen. Marshall was secured into a cell again, and the crowd that had gathered outside when they heard the shots began to melt away. But the next day, another crowd began to form. People were ready to take matters into their own hands if Uncle Tom didn't survive. By evening, the crowd had grown to hundreds, maybe even over a thousand people, and they were chanting, we want Santa Claus. Pack tried to calm them, but they grabbed him, and then they grabbed the keys to the jail cells. They seized Marshall Ratliff and dragged him to the town square. Being inexperienced executioners, they didn't do a very efficient job, and I will spare you the details. But eventually, they managed to hang Marshall Ratliff, relieving the state of Texas from having to execute him. I can hardly believe another year has passed, and together we have finished three full seasons, three 52-episode seasons of The Unlovely Truth. I cannot tell you all how thankful I am for your support. It means the world to me when you reach out and tell me that one of the episodes made a difference in your life. And we do also highlight unsolved murders, missing people, whatever that particular case happens to be, in the hopes that someone listening will know something. So please, if if you want to give me a Christmas present this year, I know it's not cool to ask for them, but I'm going to. Share your favorite episode with a friend. Let's get more people listening to The Unlovely Truth so that we can touch more lives, benefit them, hopefully be persons of impact. Um, That's really what I want for Christmas more than anything, that people are impacted, that we're helping people, especially if you share one of the episodes that highlights uh, an unsolved case. So I hope that you've all had a very, very Merry Christmas, and we're getting ready to go into 2023, season four of The Unlovely Truth. So I hope you'll hang in there with me. I hope you'll invite other people so that we can make an incredible impact for the kingdom. 
The same night that the third Santa Claus bank robber died, Marshall Ratliff, Uncle Tom Jones died from his injuries as well. Now, opinions were split on whether the mob had done the right thing or not. Uncle Tom's family issued a statement that he would never condone citizens taking the law into their own hands. The actions of the mob were investigated. I'm not sure how diligently, but it doesn't appear that anyone was ever held accountable for their actions. Now, only one of the robbers was still alive. Robert Hill had been at large the day Ratliff was lynched. He was caught the next week, and then he promptly escaped again. This time, the warden at the prison where he was being held had a talk with him, and he convinced Hill that he still had a chance for a life outside, a positive life outside, if he would just serve his time and stay out of trouble. And apparently, this made an impact on Robert because he was granted parole in 1948, and he was given permission to change his name and start over again. He had the chance to live a different life. And it seems like he took advantage of his second chance. A.C. Green published The Santa Claus Robbery in 1972. Descendants of Marshall Ratliff contacted Green, saying they'd never known this bit of family history. So any of you that are into genealogies, it would be so interesting to know if, if you had any type of this history. I know I've done quite a bit of genealogy on my family, and I had one ancestor that the, the only mention of them I could find was a reference that they were mentioned in another book that was called British Deportees. So, hey, we may all have a little bit of this somewhere in our background. One of the girls the robbers had kidnapped from the bank told Green that Bob Hill had written to her in 1932 to apologize for what he had done. Now, after he was released, Bob Hill married and lived a quiet life. He and his wife reached out to Green after the book was written. They formed a friendship, and Bob Hill even signed a copy of the book for Green. And in it, he wrote, I hope this book will cause young men to see crime cannot pay. For our Bible passage this week, I want to focus on just one verse, and it's from Proverbs, the 29th chapter, verse 11. And I just love Proverbs. It is so, so practical, so down to earth. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Now, two characters, if you will, that we see over and over again in Proverbs are the fool and the person who is wise. If we stop and think about our own lives, how many times has our anger ever led to anything good happening? And yes, what Marshall Ratliff did was wrong every single thing he did in this story. But I want us to apply this verse to what the mob of, quote, good citizens did to him. I left out most of the details because it, it was brutal. And not just what they did to him physically. Imagine how he must have felt as they screamed at him and talked about what type of noose they wanted to use to hang him. Were these people any better than Ratliff at that point? They certainly didn't bring calm in the way this verse says that the wise do. Pat Gilborn tried to bring wisdom to the situation, but the mob wouldn't listen to him because, as this verse says, the mob was giving full vent to their rage. They were angry that Ratliff might escape being executed if he could convince the court that he was insane. That hadn't worked for Henry Helms, though. So was the mob really trying to get justice or just to get revenge? 
In Romans 12, 19 through 21, it says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I used to really misunderstand this verse. That heaping burning coals thing, that sounded pretty revenge-like. And that can seem very attractive when you're mad at somebody. But when you look at other biblical references to burning coals, they represent a couple of things. And one of those is clearly judgment. And that is for God to exact, not us. They also can symbolize spiritual purification, which again, that's something only God can do. And don't we want our, quote, enemies, the, you know, the bad guys from our perspective, don't we want them to undergo spiritual purification so that they can live a new life? When we feed our hungry enemies and give them something to drink, we're showing that we're different. We don't try to take revenge ourselves. We're going to leave to God what is only his to do. That mob, they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And make no mistake, it was evil. They endangered lots of people with what they did physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You're not going to be able to get the visions out of your head when you've seen something like that. You're going to have all kinds of emotions to deal with. You're possibly going to question your faith. And when you've got a mob stampeding, people get hurt. This last episode of season three, and when I was working on it, um, you know, reading this book, outlining what I wanted to talk about, it really made me think of those three areas, staying safe physically, staying safe emotionally, and staying safe spiritually. It made me decide that I really want to focus on that for next season, because I think as believers, we should be doing what we just read about in Romans 12, 19 through 21. We should be showing the world that we're different by taking care of our enemies when they're in need. Because don't forget what it says in Proverbs 24, 17, and 18. And you know, I love me some Proverbs. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. Now, I'm not talking about let's just do this so that God will show wrath as in, you know, raining down fire from heaven on people. And that's up to him when he wants to do that. But God's wrath hopefully will also open people's eyes to the evil they've been consumed with. And then they want to turn away from it and they want to have that spiritual cleansing. That's what we should want for everybody, even people that we think are our enemies. So how do we accomplish that in our day-to-day lives? How do we apply this so that we can all be that different kind of PI, that person of impact? I think in today's society, Hopefully, actual physical mobs are not super common, but I think there are definitely times when all of us, you know, I'm including myself, we can get caught up in a herd mentality, which is a kind of a mob. We follow and we copy what we see other people doing without really thinking through these issues for ourselves. I think a great example of that is what we see in today's so-called cancel culture. One person says that somebody's done something 
that they call inappropriate. And it's hard to find anyone that will stand up for that person for fear of being canceled themselves. And what about FOMO? You know, that fear of missing out. We think that if everybody else is doing something or has something, that we need to do it and have it too. And it might not even be something we ever thought we wanted. But if everybody else values it, we start thinking, hmm, maybe we should value that too. But just like Jesus was always turning popular ideology on its head, I think that today we can do the same thing. I always say that the most important thing in keeping ourselves safe from crime is situational awareness, paying attention to who's around you, where you are, what what seems to be kind of the vibe of the people around you. And in a very, very similar way, I think the best way to fight the negative aspects of herd mentality is to practice self-awareness. Let's make sure that our decisions and our actions that we're choosing align with our biblical values instead of going along with cultural values. Somebody in your circle of influence will notice, and then they're going to want to know why you're making the choices you're making. What an absolutely amazing opportunity to share the gospel that gives you. If you liked this episode, I hope that you'll check out some earlier ones, because now with over 150 episodes available, you are going to find something that just really resonates with you. You're going to get some fantastic information that you don't want to miss. And you can also, again, give me that little Christmas present by helping someone else start their journey as a different kind of PI. When you share the episode, subscribe to the podcast, give me a five-star rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts so that we can get the word out, we can impact more people in 2023. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time as we kick off Season 4. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 